Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a graduate program focusing on sustainable landscape design has just settled on their winter term community projects, many of which center several towns in the 413. We'll talk with the Conway School. But first, despite how interested or involved you might be, after last night, there is no denying that the season has officially begun. And no one is surprised after yesterday's predictable landslide results. We are talking, of course, about awards season. And the Emmy Awards were last night, a celebration of television, but with some fabulous, fabulous 413 connections with Amherst, Massachusetts' Eben Moss Bacharach taking home one of the five trophies for the FX Hulu kitchen comedy drama, the bear ostensibly a comedy <laughs> yeah i don't know why it fits in it's always so weird when they put these yeah. in these categories like this there are obviously some funny parts but there's some funny parts in every drama yeah it's definitely a drama uh, yeah <laughs> but eben was born in amherst he went to high school at amherst regional he's the son of renee moss and eric backrack who helped to found and run the community music school of springfield whom we had on the show last week and who were a big part of the mlk day celebrations in springfield yesterday well, <laughs> while eben's acceptance speech for his best supporting actor Emmy was great. He'll probably be better remembered when he interrupted his co-star, Maddie Matheson, who is a Canadian chef turned actor who accepted the award for best comedy, but was interrupted by a kiss from Amherst's newest Emmy winner. Yeah, I just want to thank restaurants as a whole, hospitality as a whole. This is when the kiss happens. It's like a full eight second smoocheroo. Right on. More of that. Spread the love. I love you, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) I just love restaurants so much. The good, the bad, it's rough. We're all broken inside and every single day we gotta show up and cook and make people feel good by eating something and sitting at a table. And it's really beautiful. And all of us here get to make a show together and we get to make people feel good or filled with anxiety or triggered, seems. But uh, (laughs) this is really amazing. It's beautiful. The cast and crew, there's so many people that make this show happen every single day, and it's really beautiful. It's hard work. It's early hours. We don't see the sun for three months. Mm-hmm. We shoot it on a soundstage. It's really cool. I've never been on one before. I've never acted before. I love all these people so much. I love, I love my family. Trishy and Mac and Rizzo and Ozzy, I'll say my kids' names. Okay, no, no, I'm just, I'm just, we want to thank. I want to thank FX. Yeah, we want to thank FX. <laughs> FX is and tight. Dizzy, thank you so much. The I, mouse. I want to give a special shout out to our guy John Solberg, our warrior. Solberg. So much, man. Let's go. And that was Evan who came in at the last second to save the day. But it, what a great speech to pay tribute to restaurants. And I know, Khalees, that that show, he mentioned being, Maddie Matheson mentioned being triggered by the show, you who worked in restaurants. That's a oh, part of the reason why you have a hard time watching I it. have a really, really hard time <laughs> watching The Bear. Like, I have flashbacks of being on the line when I watch The Bear, and it's not comfortable. It's a really well-done show. I love everybody in it, but I have to take it in very small doses. Yeah, and I get a little triggered by the Italian-American stuff in season two. That They weren't even nominated for yesterday. That was actually the season one nominations. But a huge shout-out to Bob. Boston's own Iowa Debris, who also took home a trophy last night. I got to hang out with her at Solid Sound at Mass Mocha a couple years ago, and she was fantastic. <laughs> Apart from award season, it's now officially election season. Oh, is it? Oh, boy. Yesterday's <laughs> Iowa caucus was a record-setting landslide in favor of the former president. But should that former president's name even be on the ballot? 
The 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the Constitution of the United States of America states, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may be may by vote of two thirds of each house remove such disability. I certainly hope somebody can understand all that because I know that I, I got it. Yeah. But <laughs> this from the Daily Hampshire Gazette. After filing legal challenges in several other states to bar Donald Trump from ballot eligibility in this year's primaries, a Massachusetts incorporated advocacy group has now done so in his home state. Free Speech for People, a nonprofit led by Amherst attorney John Bonifaz, together with former state attorney general candidate Shannon Liss Riordan, filed an objection on the uh, on to the state ballot law commission saying that Donald Trump should be barred from the primary ballot on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which we just read, due to his role in the events of January 6, 2021, when supporters of the former president stormed the Capitol building in an attempt to pre- prevent the election of Joe Biden from being certified. Joining us is John Bonifaz, the aforementioned Amherst-based attorney and political activist specializing in constitutional law and voting rights. He is the president and co-founder of Free Speech for People. He is also the founder of the National Voting Rights Institute and a former candidate for Massachusetts Secretary of the Commonwealth. In 1999, he received a MacArthur Fellowship, popularly known as the Genius Award. It is the Genius Grant. Yeah, it is. Yes. And so we welcome the genius to help interpret this section of the con- of the Constitution for us and hear about what his organization's plan is for the ballot in Massachusetts. Welcome, John Bonifaz. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. Well, this is a sticky wicket indeed. Now <laughs> the, the uh, election is officially underway. Landslide in Iowa last night called minutes into the NPR broadcast. But the big question is about whether or not he should be on the ballot. So is the office of the president covered in this section three, which we just read in its entirety. It absolutely is. The framers of the 14th Amendment intended it to cover the office, and the office of the presidency is named 25 times in the Constitution. And to be an officer, you hold an office. So there was no need to specify the president in section three. What's important is to know the legislative history where the framers intended that it cover every official, every officer of the United States who took that oath of office and then engaged in insurrection. They are disqualified, and that includes Donald Trump. There is a section that talks about in that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president. Does that mean the electoral college, or what? what is that talking about, elector of? Right. So what the framers of the 14th Amendment were trying to do there was cover both the category of all officers of the United States, which includes a president or a former president, as well as senators and members of Congress who are not actually officers. They don't hold any executive power. They are part of a legislative body, and so they need to be separately named. And electors of the president of the United States, these are people who are named via the Electoral College to represent their states. They, too, don't hold any particular office. So what the framers were trying to do there with the 14th Amendment is to cover all those categories, which include the most important category 
of officers of the United States, in this case, dealing with President, former President Donald Trump. He took that oath of office. He swore to defend the Constitution. Then he led, mobilized, and facilitated the January 6th insurrection, and he's forever barred from holding public office again. I think it's a, a little important, well, not a little important, but very important to put this in framework. Like People should know that this came about through the Civil War and the actions thereof, just by nature of it being the 14th Amendment in the middle of those three amendments that we get post-war. But can we talk a little bit about how this amend- how this section came to be a part of that amendment and why? Yes, thank you. That's an excellent point and, and question. This amendment was part of the Reconstruction era amendments that came after the Civil War. We know that after the Civil War, there was the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment that is commonly known to have established equal protection under the law, but also had other provisions, including Section 3, and the 15th Amendment that bars discrimination voting based on race. These were Reconstruction era amendments designed to deal with building the Union and bringing them back together after the Civil War. Now, the framers of the 14th Amendment were very concerned about ex-Confederates who were in positions of power or sought to attain positions of power after the Civil War. They were regarded as threats to the Republic if they had taken that oath of office to defend the Constitution and then led the first insurrection in our history, the Civil War. And they were seen as not able to be trusted withholding positions of government power again. So that's why the Section 3 was put into the 14th Amendment. It was to deal with that threat to the Republic. But it's also important to note that it was not designed solely to deal with the ex-Confederates. It was designed to deal with future insurrections. And we now have the second insurrection in our nation's history on January 6, 2021. And it applies to those who took that oath of office and then engaged in insurrection, starting with the insurrectionist-in-chief, Donald Trump. We're speaking with John Boniface, the Amherst-based attorney and political activist who specializes in constitutional law and whose organization, Free Speech for People, is working to keep Trump off of the ballot in Massachusetts. This, what you just said, brings up a couple of really interesting points. Let's start historically. Historically, apart from post-Civil War, has this section of the 14th Amendment ever been used to bar somebody from office or from a ballot? Well, there was one example back in the early 20th century where it was wrongly used against a candidate who was an anti-war candidate. Um, But really, since that time, there has been no application because we haven't had an insurrection since the Civil War. And that is why it now applies today. Just because it hasn't been used in 150 years doesn't mean it's no longer uh, applicable. And it, it clearly has never been repealed from the U.S. Constitution. So here what we have today is the second insurrection in our nation's history. And we have people who took that oath of office to defend the Constitution who engaged in that insurrection. And so we launched in 2022 the first cases in 150 years to challenge candidates on the ballot. Uh, That was Madison Cawthorn, North Carolina, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, and Mark Fincham in Arizona. And we won critical court precedent out of the Cawthorn and Green cases that are now being applied to these challenges to Donald Trump. And we also know, of course, that the Colorado Supreme Court and the Maine Secretary of State have already established that Donald Trump did engage in insurrection and is disqualified from their ballots 
and the Colorado case is now pending before the U.S. Supreme Court for review. What is insurrection? This seems to be a debate that I have even amongst my uh, progressive friends where they think he has not been convicted, Donald Trump being he, of any crime particularly. So then if this clause in the Constitution talks about an insurrection, how do we differentiate between an insurrection, a political disagreement? What was January 6th? Who defines it? And is it officially? Is there a constitutional definition of what an insurrection is? There is a definition via the precedent that's been set under Section 3 for what an insurrection is. It's been apply both in the Colorado and Maine cases, but also in prior Reconstruction era cases. It is an uprising against the government designed to block a critical government proceeding. And that's what happened here. There was a, an attempt to overthrow the government to block the certification of Donald Trump's electoral defeat. And they succeeded more so than anyone did during the Civil War and, and, and the Confederates did. There was never an effort to attack the U.S. Capitol and block a government proceeding, but that happened on January 6th. For a number of hours, the U.S. Congress was not able to carry out its function of counting the Electoral College votes. Now, to the question of whether or not there needs to be a criminal conviction, that has been well established that no criminal conviction is necessary in order to enforce Section 3. This is not a question of criminal liability. That's a separate issue for the Justice Department and for state attorneys general and district attorneys to determine. But the question of Section 3 is, are they disqualified for having taken that oath of office and engaged in insurrection? And now several courts have found that no criminal conviction is necessary to enforce Section 3, including most recently the Colorado Supreme Court. And the vast majority of ex-Confederates who were disqualified were never charged with a crime. So this this precedent has been set both in the Civil War era where they were not charged with crimes, but the yes. precedent was set that they were part of an insurrection and then only now has been reasserted uh, in, by contemporary courts responding to Donald Trump and this insurrection of January 6th? That's exactly right. This is our second insurrection and why it's now being applied today. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break. We're going to have more with John Boniface, the Amherst-based lawyer who is behind the movement across the country, but in here in Massachusetts as well, uh, trying to bar Donald Trump from the ballot using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And later in the show, a graduate program focusing on sustainable landscape design has just settled on their winter term community projects, many of which center several towns in the 413. We'll speak with project manager C.J. Lammers and board chair Bill Dwight from the Conway School. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are joined by John Bonifaz, the Amherst-based attorney and political activist specializing in constitutional law and voting rights, the president and co-founder of Free Speech for People. He's a MacArthur Genius Award winner, and he's working in Massachusetts and in other states to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot. We've talked a little bit about this historically. We've talked about some precedents that were set during the Civil War era. And now uh, my question is, so we had the Iowa caucuses last night. The Iowa caucuses are not run by the state of Iowa. They are run by the GOP. They are run by 
the Republican Party. Let's talk about the difference between the party and their primary process and states and their electoral process. Are you trying to keep the Republican Party of Massachusetts from allowing Trump on the ballot? Or are you trying to keep the Commonwealth of Massachusetts from keeping Trump uh, to keep Trump off the ballot? The latter. The state has a responsibility to ensure that those who are going on their ballots are eligible for the office they seek. And that is an important distinction. In the 1920s to the 1950s, the United States Supreme Court in a case, a series of cases dealing with white primaries, exclusionary white primaries from the South, made clear that when a political party chooses the election machinery of the state to select its candidates to go on to the general election, i.e. chooses a primary election process, it has to abide by all the constitutional qualifications and requirements associated with that process. So they can't exclude people based on their race, but they also can't put people on the ballot who are ineligible for that office. And the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has a responsibility to ensure that those who are going on the primary election ballot are qualified for the office they seek. Donald Trump is not. The amendment section three, 14th Amendment section three mentions at the end of it that Congress by two thirds vote, which is the usual amount for any amendment as far as I remember, um, can change this article. Were you worried after launching the other lawsuits against um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and um, other members who participated in the insurrection that that motion might come to pass, that Congress might actually bring this up and attempt to get it changed before Trump had a chance to run? Well, two-thirds is a pretty high bar. Yes. And we didn't see that happening. But certainly it's important to note that Donald Trump has not sought that amnesty from the United States Congress. Under the Section 3, as you rightly highlight, he's free to do so, but he's not sought that. What he is trying to do is go into court and claim that the states have no role in enforcing it, that Congress and only Congress can enforce it, that he, in fact, did not engage in insurrection, that he did not take the same oath that the oath uh, breakers took who were disqualified during the Confederacy, during the post-Civil War era. And, you know, all of these arguments are frankly nonsensical. If he wants to receive the amnesty under Section 3, he needs to go to Congress to receive it and get that two-thirds vote. But barring that, he is disqualified under Section 3 from appearing on any future ballot or holding any future office. It sounds a lot like trying to eat, like have your cake and eat it too. You want to, states' rights to be like the, the, the lay of the land, but you want federal immunity for this thing that you've done. It seems like very contradictory. Again, like you mentioned, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You're right. It doesn't. And, and, and this is exactly the point that the Colorado Supreme Court highlighted. They want to protect the integrity of their presidential primary ballots, and they believe they had a duty, those justices, to enforce Section 3, just like any of the other qualifications. You know, this is not the only qualification for running for president. You have to be 35 years of age by the time of the inauguration, and there have been people underage who have sought to run and who have been blocked from the ballot. You have to be a natural born citizen. And there have been people who have not been natural born citizens who have run and been blocked from the ballot. This too is a qualification that needs to be enforced. And in this case, Donald Trump is clearly disqualified. The Colorado case is now headed for the Supreme Court. Are you at all worried about a Republican, a heavily Republican leaning court uh, 
deciding against those the things that Colorado has already seen fit to put through? Well, we certainly think that any justice who's looking at the text of the Constitution, even those who claim to be originalists, ought to recognize that it applies to Donald Trump and that he's disqualified. But it's also worth noting that Donald Trump more than 60 times in 60 different cases after the 2020 election sought to overturn the election in the courts. And each and every time he he said, you know, I'm going to get to the Supreme Court. And when I get there, my Supreme Court is going to overturn the 2020 election. And he tried multiple times for the Supreme Court to take up one of his cases. They never did. They never accepted his big lie, massive fraud arguments in the 2020 election. None of that reached the Supreme Court. And so I think that's an important indication that even those justices whom he nominated who are now on the court were not ready to buy into his big lie and were not ready to engage in, in overturning a legitimate election. And, and that is what's at stake here. They need to enforce Section 3 because Donald Trump or anyone else who seeks to overturn an election and engage in insurrection will forever be able to look at this misapplication of Section 3 if they do not enforce it and say, I can get away with it too. And we know that if Donald Trump takes power again, he will likely engage in more unlawful behavior and activity that is violating his own oath of office. We're speaking with John Bonifaz, the Amherst-based attorney and political activist, the co-founder of Free Speech for People, who's working to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in Massachusetts and in other states. Let's get to the the politics behind this now, the optics behind this. You know, full disclosure, you were one of the first voices before Trump, I think, even took office saying that he should be impeached, mostly because I think of his conflicts, the emoluments clause and other things in regards to the Constitution. But we've got the main and Colorado secretaries of state who are both Democrats. The Massachusetts secretary of state is a Democrat. If Democrats who are secretaries of state are working hard to keep Trump off the ballot, what does this say to the large portion of people in this country, as evidenced by what happened in Iowa last night, who believe this is a witch hunt, who believe Trump has been wronged, who believe that the deep state or the government itself is out to get him? Is this Does that factor in to the way you're going about this at all as a constitutional scholar and somebody working for what seems like you believe the Constitution is saying you must do. Right. Well, we we approach this at Free Speech for People as a nonpartisan defense of a critical constitutional provision to defend our republic. And the clients that we have represented in this include a diverse group of, of clients in each of these states that include Republicans, include independent voters, as well as Democrats. One of our clients in our first case in Minnesota was a former justice of the state Supreme Court and a Republican. Uh, we represented in in Michigan Republicans who were challenging Donald Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot. And here in Massachusetts, we represent a diverse group that includes Republicans. The voters in Colorado who are challenging Donald Trump's eligibility include Republicans and independent voters. So this is actually not something aligned with one political party. This is aligned with the Constitution. And even the justices who decided the case in, in the Colorado Supreme Court, not all of them are registered Democrats or appointed by Democratic governors. This is about whether we as a country are going to apply the supreme law of the land, the Constitution, in a nonpartisan and fair way to demonstrate 
that it applies to all. If a Democratic president had incited an insurrection, had mobilized and facilitated a violent attack on our nation's capital to certify his electoral defeat, I would be talking with you about how that Democratic president is disqualified from ever holding public office again. Speaking with John Bonifaz, here's an example. When Trump was elected in 2016, there was a movement that was percolating that uh, the quote unquote Hamilton electors could decide that he was ineligible and shouldn't be elected president. If the Hamilton electors were successful, would free speech for people have said this is an attempt to overturn an election? Well, I, you know, we were not involved in that effort, uh -huh. and I'm not really sure what their claims really were about whether he was legitimate or not. I will say on the impeachment front, we launched our impeachment campaign the moment Donald Trump took his oath of office because he was treating the Oval Office as a profit-making enterprise, refusing to divest from his businesses all around the world in violation of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. So that's why we launched that impeachment campaign. But I think we have to look at the specifics of what happened on January 6th. This wasn't solely about challenging a state and whether there were voting rights violations occurring in that one state and having a lawsuit initiated or some kind of legal proceeding. This was an unlawful effort to overturn our government and to overturn the election process. And it was done with violence and an uprising that Donald Trump himself incited. This is not the only place where this campaign is happening. How is the campaign in Massachusetts doing compared to the other states where you've launched this effort? Well, the filing in Massachusetts began on January 4th, and it now is facing a pre-hearing conference this coming Thursday, uh, January 18th, after which there will likely be a hearing on the merits. The ballot law commission needs to decide by January 29th, and then it will be subject to judicial review. Uh, the case we have pending in Illinois is pending before an electoral board there, the State Board of Elections, and there, there too, there will likely be a decision by the end of the month. So these states are moving forward and considering these challenges. We're speaking with John Bonifaz, the Amherst based lawyer from Free Speech for People, working to keep Trump off the ballot currently. We did get a great question from Carol, one of our listeners. She writes, it seems to me that Trumpster, as she calls him, is not eligible to serve as president under the 14th Amendment on account of having engaged in an insurrection and having given and continuing to give aid and comfort to other insurrectionists, calling them patriots and hostages, promising to pardon them, etc. But that he is not barred from having his name on the ballot or from being written in by voters. What am I missing? Is it possible if he's barred from the ballot that these voters could write him in and that he could still win? So that's a great question because the Colorado Supreme Court directly answered this point. They said that not only is he barred from the ballot, but that any write-in votes shall not be counted by Colorado uh, election authorities as being valid. And that is really how this gets applied. If Donald Trump is ineligible to appear on the ballot, then he's ineligible to have his write-in votes accounted. Uh, and furthermore, he's ineligible, obviously, to take office uh, on election, you know, on inauguration day. So I, I think what we have to do here is is recognize that there is a existential threat happening right now to our democracy. And that existential threat is whether or not we're going to uphold the basic principles of democracy or whether we're going to move down an authoritarian road. And Donald Trump represents that threat. And the reason why Section 3 is so important today is because it is the safeguard 
to defend our republic at this kind of moment. The insurrection that occurred during the Civil War was seen as a threat to the republic, and no one who took that oath of office and who participated in that insurrection was seen as being able to be trusted for holding public office again. And we have the same situation now after January 6th. No one who took that oath of office, and especially not the President of the United States who took that oath of office and then engaged in insurrection, can be trusted to hold public office again. There was an interesting piece in the Times this Sunday by Jamel Bowie that said, in part, the former president is no longer in a position to try to subvert an election outcome using the power of the federal government. He also said that you should think of the intimidation and death threats, along with Trump's recent warning that there will be bedlam in the country if he's disqualified from the ballot. Do you or your organization, are you worried that this is a a potential consequence if he is banned from the ballot? That there will be more violence. Uh, This is a critical question because it really gets to whether we're going to allow the fear and the threats that may occur from Donald Trump's backers to overtake the rule of law. We are either a a, a country governed by laws and the rule of law or governed by raw power and mob rule. And that's what's at stake here. And that's exactly what was tried during the insurrection on January 6th, mob rule. And ultimately it didn't prevail, but it delayed and blocked the certification of Donald Trump's electoral defeat for a number of hours. It was one of the most dangerous moments in our republic, and we're facing it again if we allow him on the ballot. John Bonifaz, the Amherst-based attorney who's behind the movement in Massachusetts and beyond to keep Donald Trump off the ballot using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Thank you. Up next, the Conway School of Landscape Design's graduate students have begun work with six real-world nonprofits and municipalities on large-scale community planning projects. With a focus on ecological and social sustainability, most of those projects are centered here in the 413. We'll talk with project manager CJ Lammers and board chair Bill Dwight. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. The Conway School is a small, independent, accredited graduate program of sustainable and land planning and design. Through an intensive, full-time, 10-month program, students learn whole system design thinking by working on real projects with real client partners in New England and adjoining states. Since 1972, students at the Conway School have provided design and planning studies for hundreds of individuals and communities working with homeowners, schools, municipalities, land trusts, theater groups, libraries, farmers, and watershed organizations to protect valuable resources, to make them more accessible, and to plan for the future. Each January, Conway School of Landscape Design's graduate students to begin work with six real-world nonprofits and municipalities on large-scale community planning projects with a focus on ecological and social sustainability. Completed community projects hope to offer long-term solutions to communities and municipalities that address community needs while considering ecological impacts and long-term resilience. Here to talk about this year's projects is... To are, because <laughs> there's two of them, Project Manager C.J. Lammers and Conway School Board Chair Bill Dwight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Of course. Great to be here. Yes, Bill Dwight, of course, is the longtime political uh, gadfly of Northampton and former city council president. So we may talk a little bit about what's going on in the city of Northampton and the downtown there. But Bill, you are also the board chair of the Conway School. Tell us about this school, its vision, and why you're involved with it. Well, I mean, basically, you guys stole all my thunder there with that preamble. That was very nice. Thank That's you. But that, Conway School has been around. We're in our 51st year right now. It, it basically was the result of frustration 
um, with uh, design, landscape design. Landscape design principally once upon a time basically was make me a nice garden. And, yeah, it still and, sounds like yeah, that. And make, yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> give, me, give, me a, give me a koi pond and so on and so forth. Conway actually is more about um, massaging the natural systems that sustain us and making them work for us. At the same time, it doesn't preclude aesthetics, but it's, it, as a result, the philosophy that Conway has has actually made it world famous. We, we, it's a little gem here in the valley that's much overlooked, but Conway School really is among the cognoscenti, the people who do these things, <laughs> really know about Conway's existence and its mission and its value. Um, you know, it still doesn't explain why I'm there. We don't understand that. But then that's uh, some things. <laughs> Nobody can spread mulch like yeah, Bill Dwight. Right. <laughs> right. I know how to roll a wheelbarrow. Uh-huh. No one knows how Bill Dwight showed up at the Conway School. All of a sudden, one day he was there, and he's it, been there ever since. Yeah. Just say my name three times, and then I show up, and that says. <laughs> but C.J. Lammers here, who's who's sitting to my left, is uh, the quintessence of what Conway School is, and C.J. actually comes from a planning background, and we were talking about this in the green room, that planning, when people talk about planning, it sounds like, do you want to take a nap? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's not something that um, that gets people's juices flowing, particularly municipal uh, systems or government systems. When they talk about planning, it, it just sounds like you're deferring something. But point in fact, CJ's come up through, the <laughs> through this process and knows that it it's intrinsic and real value and what it means to actually plan as opposed to be a reactionary system. And I'll I'll defer to CJ here and let let her talk about it. Yeah, well CJ, tell us an example of where like planning comes into play that we might see or experience here, maybe even something that Conway's been involved with that affects our day to day. Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, one of the projects we're working on this winter is in Springfield where we are today, and uh, it's to look at their food equity, food system, and to identify where it's uh, falling short, where we can help support the community move the project forward. We're working with the Springfield Food Policy Council, which is an awesome organization. This will be our second time doing a project with them. Shout out to Liz O'Gilvy, who's one of our favorite people, has been on this show, a huge inspiration to me. Yes, (laughs) yes, right on, right on. If I could just say a little bit about how these projects fit into our overall curriculum. It's a 10-month program, and the students get a Master's of Ecological Design. And it's a Master's of Science, which I can really appreciate because it's the iterative method. It's going back and looking at what were your assumptions and through uh, meaningful community engagement – bringing forward solutions for the community that that are based on what their needs are. So tell us about, we started talking about the work with the Springfield Food Policy Council. What's going to happen in this uh, iteration of Conway School's work with the Springfield Food Policy Council? And have those uh, plans changed drastically from the first version to this version that you're about to get into? Yes, for all of our winter and spring projects, they're team projects. So they're in the community. We assign two or three students to each uh, project, and they do some kind of community engagement. You know, we'd say two community engagement sessions, air quotes, or equivalent, because in some communities it's not a, 
y'all come, let's have a meeting if we can't provide childcare and other things to make that engagement meaningful for the community. The last time there was a focus on trying to find public land to grow food. So that was 10 years ago. And the students did a full analysis. In the winter, it's a lot about mapping and using geographic informational systems to analyze what do the maps tell us. So this time we wanted to look at that, not only where could Springfield grow food, but Liz O'Gilvie and I had a long conversation about what's missing in this system. And one way to make it more sustainable is, again, growing food in the city and or with farmers who are connected to the city. So the students are gonna look at the whole system, like how does it work today? And what are the needs of the community to lay out a plan, which is recommendations for the future? I call it telling yourself to do things. <laughs> it's like a to-do <laughs> list. Is, is what a it's plan is. It's all on a is. post-it note, and you feel good every time you cross one off. <laughs> it is. And if you set out policies and strategies, then you have that vision for one of the things that, that uh, Bill talked about in, in the green room was – Every time there was some decision or something to happen in Northampton, they went back to their visioning plan. Uh They went back to that comprehensive plan and said, what does that plan say about how we should be banking this decision? So I think planning is super important. And I think the Conway School provides, kind of fills a gap in, especially in small communities where they only have one planner or no planner in much of Western Massachusetts. So you mentioned that 10 years ago, Conway worked with Springfield Food Policy Council and that you're still looking at places and how to implement the 10-year-ago plan and and this new plan, perhaps. Uh, Gardening the community is something that I know well from the Springfield area. Liz O'Gilvie involved in that as well as the Springfield Food Policy Council. Uh, I guess this might be a chicken-egg question, but what came first, the Conway plan or gardening the community or did one feed the other? Well, I didn't know you were such a fan or I certainly would have brought that up, Monty. For sure. It was the plan resulted in identifying a piece of property that then some Conway folks helped to make a reality for gardening the community. And I I think that's what planning does. It identifies needs coming from the community themselves, needs, and lays out kind of a work plan for 10 years. We also went back to um, Greenfield who had a sustainable uh, greenfield plan 10 years ago. And I I love a good plan that's 10 years old because (laughs) that means it's time for it to be updated. Right. And we talked with the Springfield, uh, sorry, (laughs) sustainable greenfield. All the fields are are getting (laughs) me this time. We're getting too far afield. Uh, (laughs) uh, When talking with the greenfield folks, they said, uh, yes, we are definitely ready for an update. We've done a lot of things. Greenfield's very uh, engaged community, and uh, with all that engagement, they've done a lot in 10 years. Well, I want to hear about some of those. Let's take a little break first. Yes, let's. We're speaking with C.J. Lammers and Bill Dwight from the Conway School. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We're speaking with the project manager, C.J. Lammers, and the board chair, Bill Dwight, of the Conway School. It's in Northampton. Why is it called the Conway School? Well, that's where it was founded. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's where just... it was founded in, in um, yeah, and in 
the name is significant and means a lot to the people who found it and the people who attended the school. And it's, it, it was in East Hampton for a little bit, too. So it, um, But now it has found its home in Village Hill in Northampton, the campus that we own. We just paid down the mortgage. Congratulations. So, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's, it, it's, Only took 50 years. Yeah, well, no, yeah. you know, that's planning. Yeah, that's planning. And that's what Conway does really well. That's just doing long, long-range goals, yeah. Um, you've mentioned that these 50 years, like the school was started to form a different school of thought regarding landscape design. What makes the process that you teach at Conway School different from what you would learn elsewhere in another landscape or ecological design graduate program? Yeah, so it's not only the method that we teach, but it's also how um, the learning happens. It's a cohort of only 18 students. So those 18 students move through the program as a cohort together. They comment on each other's projects. They contribute to each other's projects, even if they're not on that team. And it's only 18, it's only 10 months. So it's a master's of science, as I said, in 10 months. Most graduate programs are two to three years and cost four to five times what our tuition is. So we often attract older um, adults who have, I mean, I call it an, an adult student body because many of them have work experience already. I forget what our average age is this year. It's something like 32. So uh, we bring in you know, these mature students who can come in and manage the projects and get this real-world experience, real clients on real projects so that they know how to manage a project when they graduate. And we keep talking about the green room and the magical place we were before, that you were in Bowie before in, in Maryland. How was the program or the, the work you were doing there in Maryland different from what you are doing currently at the Conway School? Yeah, well, in, in doing that kind of environmental planning, it's a very regulatory kind of environment. But in Maryland, planning really means something. It has teeth, and the plans that we did had to be followed. And that's, I think, what brings forth my passion for planning and the importance of laying out land uses and not just letting things happen willy-nilly and having a vision and a guide for your future. I, I always say I have the best job at the Conway School because I get to meet people all over New England and talk to them about the great work we do. I, I always say that if they know us, they love us, they just don't know us yet. <laughs> <laughs> but none of the stuff has to be implemented. It's really just, it's a project, right? I mean, this isn't legislative, like what's going to happen in Northampton with the redesign project, which maybe we'll talk to Bill Dwight about in a little bit. This is really just a what if kind of situation. The one plan that is mandatory that we do at least one of every year is the open space and recreation plans that are required for every community, all 351 of them in Massachusetts. And that particular plan is used to guide recreation and uh, land use funding related to open space. Now, I know you're working with the city of Chicopee. Is this one of those particular plans? It looks like some of the work you might be doing there has to do with open space and trails, et cetera. 
this is not an open space plan, but it's it's interesting because that project is as a result of another plan that told them to go do this plan. Uh, another Conway plan? No. Uh, oh, I would have liked to. Have. I would have liked to. Have. <laughs> no, they just finished their, their comprehensive plan. It's called Envision Chicopee. And this was one of the recommendations that was right out of the of the gates. I think they just passed it in September or October of this year. So this is one of the recommendations to figure out how to connect all the they have lots of great trails in Chicopee. Amazing. But the planning director is more interested in making the overall city get this car free. Wow. That's his goal. Long term. So that's a 20, 30, 40 year goal, right? But if you never talk about it, you never say the goals out loud, you never get funding to do them. So that's why I'm such a proponent of planning. And, you know, these six projects to all be in Massachusetts this year, we're, you know, really trying to support our local communities. You've got two plans that are outside the 413 in Holbrook and Weymouth. We'll put those aside for a minute. But the Petersham plan is now, is that one of the ones that may be more or is required by? by law there in town. That is actually an open space and recreation plan. And they actually waited over two years to get on our selection list because we had an open space plan on our curriculum last year. And then they said, but we want you to do it. So we said, okay, you have to wait to 2024. Oh, go ahead. So do towns and cities in in all over New England and wherever, because I saw on your project list, there's like one in Arizona, like way, way out. But um, do they, they contact you instead of the the students thinking like, I think I have something I could pitch to this city for this project that they've they've had open call for? Well, I'm the pitch agent for the school. <laughs> I, I do the I do the pitching, and uh, yeah, it's uh, sometimes cities come to us. Weymouth was a letter out of the blue. They said, "Hey, we have heard of the Conway School, and you know where they are? They're over on the coast." Mm-hmm. So we were super excited because they wanted to do a heat mitigation plan that was, wait for it, also recommended by another plan. <laughs> Plans upon plans upon plans. (laughs) Yes, their municipal vulnerability plan, if you're familiar with that, Mm. that's the state's climate action planning, uh, had said you need to do a heat island mitigation plan because you're discharging all the stormwater directly into the ocean and it's not being treated and it's you've got these heat islands. How and that's there's environmental justice communities in Weymouth, so we said, okay, we're in, even though you're three hours away. <laughs> well, I'm excited about some of the work they would be doing in my county, Franklin County in Greenfield. With I know that the Conway School was involved with the pocket parks, et cetera, that uh, have been instituted. And uh, that plan, a 10-year sustainability plan, getting a redo right now. We're speaking with project manager C.J. Lammers from the Conway School and board chair Bill Dwight. But I also have a very fond place in my heart for the city of Northampton, where you were on the city council for many years, city council president. They are planning now in response to uh, some discussions and a lot of heated discussions about what to do with downtown. I know you worked under Mayor David Narkowitz, who was a total nerd when it came to planning and roundabouts and traffic mitigation and things like that. What's your now non-governmental take on the plan to redesign downtown Northampton? Well, actually, that evolved from um, a visioning quest on our own, actually, that that CJ referred to. we had what was called the 2020 plan, which was developed in 2015, actually discussing. But Foresight e- is 2020. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and the idea was to get as much community input as you could 
to try and get a, somewhat of a consensus. You're not going to get consensus, right. period. I mean, people right. come to a community and have their own perspective of the way they think it should evolve. But the general consensus and not only the reason you do for plan, uh, make planning is to actually have a comprehensive approach as opposed to, as I said, just piecemeal doing something that looks good or maybe there's money available. The planning for downtown, for Northampton's downtown, has been ongoing for over 30 years. I mean, it was clear um, if you look, um, Northampton, like a lot of old New England towns or anywhere in the Northeast, was essentially designed by uh, herd animals, uh, <laughs> goats, cows, and the like. As someone and, from Boston, I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, of course not. And then Boston went and compounded it by turning some of them one-way streets. So yeah, they, exactly. And, and reversing it. But the, the, yeah, so um, as a result, um, Northampton evolved, but not necessarily through planning. Now it's in planning stage, and now the community said, "Let's have a look. let's make this a more accommodating place for the public." Well, if you're looking for a plan for your city, I think we've learned about a good place that you may not have heard about before: the Conway School. And we've been glad to be joined today by the Conway School Board Chair Bill Dwight, as well as their Project Manager C.J. Lammers. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And you can see some of the the plans that have been approved for the winter term on their website, as well as some of their previous projects. And it's really neat to just like see the kind of mock-ups of what's going to happen or might happen. And consider applying to the Conway School as well. Yeah. (laughs) Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, aging, kind of awesome. And there's a couple of locals you can see in an upcoming documentary about the importance of art in the process. We'll talk to two Western Mass actors featured in the documentary, Art and Medicine, Healthy Aging. We'll talk with Candace and Ray Burke. Plus, listener questions with our resident wordster, Emily Brewster, senior editor at Merriam-Webster, and a bounty of snow-chilled vegetables at Winter Moon Roots Farm in Hadley. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Olivia Rodrigo, Motorhead, Franz Ferdinand, and Aaron McKeown. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kalise Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.